survivors. It's time to wake up. Here's your host, Phelan. Hello and good morning, survivors. What a day. I don't know where you are in the world, but here in the United States, there are a lot of people digging themselves out after winter storm Landon tore his way in a 3,000 mile path across the United States. Some pretty exciting stuff. I guess something like that hasn't happened for over 40 years. So, pretty shocking. To say the least, many, many people without electricity. I hope you weren't one of them. If you were, I hope you made it through safe, sound, but most importantly, kept yourself and your pets warm. Today, we have quite an interesting subject. This is something that I've been meaning to kind of touch on for a while. It's something that has resonated with me throughout many periods of my life where uh, we think about the impact of words. And you're going to find that the title of this specific podcast is Words. I don't know if you've heard recently, but Whoopi Goldberg, who has been a panelist on The View for something like 12 years, had made some remarks. Those remarks were, and I'm going to quote loosely here, that the Holocaust wasn't about race, it was about man's inhumanity toward humanity. Now, of course, you and I know that is not true. The Holocaust was very much about race, and race alone was leveraged to commit one of the most disastrous atrocities of our history. She went on the next day, and she apologized to the audience for misspeaking, and also wrote an apology on her Twitter, and the following episode she had on a guest um, from, I believe it was the the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, who is uh, the chief executive of that organization, appeared to discuss the topic at hand, which had come up because the women at the table as they have for 25 years, we're discussing the hot topics of the day. And one of those hot topics was the fact that a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Mouse, was looking at being banned because of its depiction of the Holocaust and the uncomfortable imagery contained therein. Naturally, there was tremendous backlash. Unfortunately, Whoopi Goldberg's faux pas, and regardless of her apology and her statement on Twitter and her uh, bringing on someone who could correct her and inform her opinion, uh, she ended up being suspended for two weeks. Okay? All of that wasn't enough. 
And I have to say, you a lot of times when we see people offer up these empty promises of I've learned my lesson and I'm sorry, a lot of it is manufactured by publicists in order to mitigate the damage to the individual's career. And Whoopi Goldberg has seen her fair share of scandal in her comedy career over the years, but Whoopi Goldberg is not an anti-Semite. Whoopi Goldberg is not somebody who doesn't believe the Holocaust existed. Whoopi Goldberg is somebody, in my experience, as someone who grew up with her in my sphere, I understood to be an ally to the Jewish community, an ally to the LGBTQ community, an ally to women, and an advocate for them to maintain sovereignty over their own choices when it comes to their reproduction. She has been somebody who has been on the front lines, including at protests, to make sure that she amplified the voices of the disenfranchised or the marginalized communities that were often under attack by radical conservative governments or groups. Whoopi Goldberg, unfortunately, suffered the suspension as a result of what she said because ABC felt that they had to do that lest they set a precedent where um, if someone was to come along and say something worse later on, there would have already been precedent to remove them, suspend them, or discipline them in some fashion. But when it comes to words, especially ignorant words, right, I believe Whoopi Goldberg suffered a lapse in judgment where she didn't, in those few seconds that they're allowed to speak on The View between breaks, I don't think she had enough time to really gather her thoughts and express herself with the decorum necessary in order to pay homage to a conversation that deserves the gravity that the Holocaust does. And I think her misspeaking was not because she believed that Jews didn't really experience the terror and the trauma or that six million people were murdered. I think she was trying to sort of amplify the idea that people throughout centuries have committed horrible atrocities against other people you know, slavery, the Native American genocide, allowing gay people to die by the millions of AIDS while our government sat idle, thinking that it was some sort of justice. And words can certainly hurt, especially when you have a platform. And I'm going to be very honest and frank with you survivors. I'm not always going to say the right thing either. Sometimes my words are going to mix up and what I say does not necessarily coalesce with what I meant to deliver. My impact might not have hit the right button. Sometimes we misspeak. That's just part of being human. It doesn't mean that we're careless, bigots, supporters of the KKK, anti-Semites, or homophobes, or transphobes, or whatever. It just means that sometimes the words that we use, we don't necessarily organize in that moment to express the way that we wish we would have. And it's a very human error. And especially when you're talking about subjects that are as sensitive 
and as important as these, it's really easy to try to find the best words to express how you feel. And we don't always, we don't always succeed. We don't always find that we hit the right key. We don't always find that we were able to adequately express what we meant when the words came out. And sometimes the words that manifest from our mouth in a short period of time while we're doing a show or in a rush or we're watching a clock countdown us to a commercial, those words are misrepresentative of how we feel. And we need permission to correct ourselves. And, you know, it really should be okay to, if I have made an error, if Whoopi Goldberg has made an error, to be given the grace and the mercy to apologize without scrutiny, to be given, to be given the kindness and the decency to say, I'm sorry, without the pile-on of people saying, oh, you didn't really mean it. Oh, what a fake apology. Oh, that was a non-apology. Because we tend to love to do that. If you look at our society in 2022, when somebody makes an error that, that isn't necessarily intended to come with nefarious intent, we, we always deny them the privilege of correcting the record because the apology is never enough to satisfy us. And it happens all the time. All the time. And that's why I felt like this conversation really needed to revolve around our communication. The words that we use. You know, words can really, really hurt. And I tell you this as a trans person right? Uh, A once gay person, because before trans existed, before we knew what the right word was, before we knew the proper vernacular or identifier, we were just um, at some points in times transvestites and drag queens and cross-dressers, transsexuals, you know, you name it, until we found more dignified ways to self-represent that adequately embraced all of who we were with dignity and respect, right? But the people who didn't have that language didn't have the ability to call on those when being self-referential. So you'll notice a lot of people, especially researchers who go back today and, for example, listen to Marsha P. Johnson, the pioneer or Sylvia Rivera, legendary Sylvia Rivera, you'll hear in some of their earliest interviews them refer to themselves as as trannies. You'll hear them refer to themselves as drag queens. You'll hear them refer to themselves as, you know, transvestites. And that can be alarming from our stance today, from the perch that we are upon today, looking down upon history and seeing that uh, the tools that others in history weren't equipped with didn't have the ability to properly assign a label to themselves. And 
that startled a lot of people, shocked a lot of people that some these pioneers of this golden era of gay rights, uh, the people who started the movement and made massive, massive impact on the evolution of gay rights, would address themselves in derogatory ways. But it was all they had. And sometimes, sadly, I do, I hate to admit it, but the language that we often use is what we adapt from hearing the way people who hate us talk about us. And so we adopt that language as if it belongs to us now, as if that's what they said we are, so that must be what we are. But words mean something. And sometimes words need to be reclaimed. Sometimes words need to be redefined and re-embraced as society evolved. We've seen so many people within the black community do so over the N-word. They've removed the caustic power from it and instead have reinvigorated it and infused it with pride and power, not hate and threats and degrading, dehumanizing venom spewed from somebody who loathed them for the color of their skin. We changed the way that word existed. I oftentimes think that when it comes to words, I can be pretty liberal. And that's probably because of my age versus my experience. I've been called every name in the book. When I was a little gay boy, I was often called the F word. I, I was correlated with Oh, you want to be a girl, don't you? You're just a girl, as if the uh, act of implying I was female was derogatory, because females were considered derogatory. So I was called that, and all kinds of hateful, hateful words. And this is in sixth grade, you know? And it jarred me to my core, because there were elements of things that they would say that I had to ask the definition of. And I remember coming home and asking my mother what a faggot was. And she told me it was a man who has sex with other men. And I really didn't have a full grasp on what sex was, but I knew that it was men that loved other men or had an attraction to other men. And I had a crush on a little boy when I was in school. So I knew that that must apply to me. And I believed for a good long time I must be a faggot. I didn't know how otherwise to define myself. And then as I grew older, I learned the actual connotations of that. I learned the indictment that would follow after hearing that word. I learned how it had applied to me something that was uh, demeaning and degrading and un untrue, largely a lie. Not that I didn't like other boys, but that I was going to get a disease and break out in boils, and I was going to have to go far away from home and stay away from my mother and other children because I'd be contagious. And, well, the idea of being gay was so terrifying to me and other people making sense of the fact that they hated gay people frightened me beyond measure to the point where I grew to hate myself 
because I couldn't undo that within me. I couldn't change it. I had no control. No matter how badly I wanted to not be that, no amount of prayer could take the gay away. Those words really stuck with me for a great deal of my youth. But as I've gotten older and I transitioned into being a a trans person, once I understood and had been taught what being transgender was, and I recognized it almost in an epiphany upon hearing about what transgender was, that I ticked every box and I fit that mold, finally gave me a beautiful, beautiful clarity that I had been lacking for so many years that I knew I needed. I knew that was the only proper label to apply to me because that is without a doubt who I was. And I understood that. And that felt like a gift given to me because it gave me a starting point on my journey as a trans person to continue my development and figure out this new world that I was going to inhabit and navigate this new territory. And oftentimes it's unfortunate, but those words coming from the darkest places with the most evil intent can sometimes lead us to realizations about ourselves that we somehow then have to sanitize, find the truths in, and learn to love ourselves anyway. Because while being called gay in sixth grade might have sent me home crying every day, it might have made Ryan Gassner punch me in the face, and Lance Hedrick push me down the stairs, and Heather Pitchford push my books out of my hand, you faggot, you queer, you gay kid. While I cried and cried and cried and cried, when I was old enough to understand that those weren't scary words, and the words alone didn't bruise me. They didn't rob me of my life. They didn't steal from me my consciousness or my will to do good in the world. They were just words. And I let them hurt me, mostly because the intention behind them was to do just that. And that's something that I think we have largely lost sight of in today's world where everybody is angry. Everybody is in a perpetual state of chaos and disarray and defensiveness and locked in battle with one group or one person or another. And as I was listening to Whoopi Goldberg give a very brief statement, because it was just a very short thing, and I understood that what she had said was deeply misinformed, I also understood something very important. Her intention was not to minimize or dismiss the plight of Jewish people around the world. Her intention was not because she hated Jews. Her intention wasn't to deliver her words with a loaded weapon. In fact, By virtue of her own words many times in the past, she loved, supported, 
and advocated for the Jewish community. So while words are extremely relevant in our society and in the way in which we communicate, especially when we do it and we have a platform, we sometimes have to stop and ask ourselves what the intention behind the words was. Because if the intention was not to hurt, harm, disgrace, destroy, demean, diminish, disparage, or dehumanize, maybe we need to accept that that person is capable of being taught. That's a teachable moment, a teachable individual, and somebody likely willing to learn. Because I've met many people with the very best of intentions who say the wrong thing because they've never been educated. They only know they want to be on the right side of history, so they may not know the right language to use. They might not know the nuances that are involved in how they address specific issues, especially the older generation, right? They're not keyed in to some of these things like new pronouns and how we address people today, how we create inclusive, safe environments for everybody. They may not be aware that that language has evolved in a way to make it less caustic or violent and to remove a lot of the stigma that they had started with, and in other cases, to remove some of that toxic power when they were once weaponized and wielded against us. Words matter. But the intention to deliver those words, hoping to wound someone, hoping to harm someone, hoping to target and attack someone because you either disagree with them or you find them an aberration of normality or you disapprove of the way that they uh, live their life or express themselves. Those are the words that are used as weapons. Those are the ones that come loaded with arsenal. Those are the ones that cut us deep riddle us with holes and are difficult to recover from. And those assailants are the ones that are impossible to explain to, impossible to make understand what they're doing, that they're hurting you because that was what they wanted. To hurt, to maim, to harm, to make you feel small, embarrassed, humiliated, insignificant, ashamed. But that that is not everyone. And that was not Whoopi Goldberg. When you have someone like J.K. Rowling, on the other hand, right? Or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or Jermaine uh, Greer, or any number of individuals with a significant platform that target a minority and use loaded words, caustic and offensive words, 
in order to imply that this community is threatening, that they are dangerous, that they are rapists or potential child molesters or somehow predatory. And that's what you want people to walk away believing. That's when those words kill. Because these words that are spread around in far-right magazines and newspapers and web pages that uh, provide this caricature, um, this make-believe fantasy of what a trans person is, and it's the big bad wolf, right? The boogeyman under the bed, something to fear, something to run from, too much of an aberration to be part of society where the rest of us can't feel safe in their company. Those words are explicitly designed for destruction, to impose pain, to convince others that they are right, to influence others to believe how they believe, to shape opinions to mirror their own. That's when words become deadly. And if you want a sample of how recklessly and irresponsible words are used, turn on Fox News. Go to church and hear about how I heard and how millions of other LGBTQ people did or divorcees did. You're going to hell. And you walk away from that place living in mortal fear of your afterlife. God hates you. You're cast away if you can't fix yourself. More words, but those words were also designed to deconstruct you as a human being and rebuild you in the image of somebody you are not. Sometimes it's your parents. Sometimes it's your friends. Sometimes it's somebody in your peer group uh, or your radio club or your your game night that says something deliberately delivered with the intention of making you feel insignificant, letting you know that by hook or crook, they disapprove of you. And those people actively seek to reduce you as a lesser. It's an act of superiority, right? It's a, it, it provides them a sense of, I am better than you. I am more worthy than you. I am more deserving than you. And thus, I can say to you and treat you however I like, because you are beneath me. And sometimes people are indoctrinated into that thought. Sometimes people can possess that belief by no fault of their own, but having grown up witnessing it coming from other people in their close proximity. And therefore, they adapted that mentality organically. And it's hard to break them of that. It's hard to get them to open their eyes and say, hey, I'm deliberately causing trauma to innocent people. And I don't have to. I don't have to. 
I have the option to shut up and listen. I have the option to learn something from someone willing to speak to me. And it's just as easy to make that decision as it is to get behind a keyboard, sign into Twitter, and unload on a minority or a class of people that you find yourself offended by. That is not always the case. Sometimes words are just poorly chosen sounds that we make that suffer nothing but the consequence of a poor delivery. And I'm guilty of doing it. I've done it myself. I've said something with the best of intentions, believing I was doing and saying the right thing, only to find myself needing to be educated on the matter that I was talking about. And it's okay to not know. It's not okay to not want to know. Because that's how we... That's how we develop. That's how we grow. That's how we evolve in society in the way that we navigate it and engage. And it shapes the way that we communicate with the world around us as it too changes. But to persecute someone who had the best of intention and whose history stands as somebody who has a resume as an ally a proud ally, somebody we as a community and many other communities have championed in the past for their activism and their goodness and their righteousness and their willingness to put their own selves at risk, their own career at risk by standing alongside of us when we're under attack, to punish them, to pile on them, to pull out every single thing they ever did that was questionable over their 40-year-long career and make a mockery of them and harass them and label them as just a bad person seems increasingly dangerous to me. You know, without naming names, because I don't want this to be a political episode, we've had presidents refer to anti-Semites carrying tiki torches as very fine people. As they chanted, Jews will not replace us. We've had presidents say that if you don't vote for me, you're not black. We've had presidents say that transgender women in the military were burdens on the system and distractions to the men serving our country. Those words were designed to demoralize a community. Those words were designed to have a negative impact, to inflame, to cause contention, and to create division by further pushing a minority to the fringes of society by doubling down on the fact that that person delivering those words believes they do not belong. They do not belong amongst the rest of us. Those words matter. Those words matter because the intention behind them was to achieve a result. And that result was to see good people come under fire, be attacked in public, be attacked by their colleagues in the military, be alienated by their peer groups, incite 
a panic and force them to go on the defense, to dig in their heels and say, we do belong here. We have a right to belong here. That was the intention. When we don't look at people's intention and, and, and we just allow ourselves to go into this knee-jerk reaction where we immediately get angry, we immediately get upset, and we immediately come out swinging, we can often find ourselves turning a potential ally into an enemy. We can turn somebody who has compassion, has a vested interest in us, cares about what happens to us. And if they make an error in the language they use, or the cadence that which they speak, or they misword a tweet, or they use the wrong pronoun, and we beat them over the head exhaustively and abuse them. They're like, I don't need to deal with this. I'm not having anything to do with this anymore. This is too scary. I, I can't, I can't function. I'm absolutely scared that if I make any mistake, they're going to behead me. They're going to ridicule me and they're going to brand me a hater and a bigot. And they're going to bring the quality of my person into contest all because I've made an error. And I've seen a lot of potential allies become full-blown enemies because we didn't give them the grace of an error they made and we didn't give them the time to correct them in a kind, compassionate, and concerted way without terrifying them. One example of that was uh, there was a lady on Twitter who was actually defending gay people. And she said, I don't care what anyone does. If that's what they want to be their lifestyle, then we should leave them to it instead of trying to get involved or change that lifestyle. And a lot of people came out angry and they were fueled by this fury to inform her that being gay wasn't a lifestyle. It was a natural, organic way of development. It just wasn't the same as hers. And because we didn't stop and explain and instead colluded to see her undoing she became one of the most anti-gay people on Twitter who thought we were all mad and insane, that we were radicals, anarchists, and violent, and always looking to pick a fight and drag somebody down and cannibalize even those eager to be on our side and support us. I have had to quickly learn as a trans person out in the world making my way through social situations to understand the difference between a word meant to cut me deep and a word that might be a slip of the tongue or a sort of a careless word that somebody didn't know better than to use. And those are two very separate things that shouldn't be met with the same amount of intensity with which we respond. 
you know, I had a woman uh, say to me in a bar once because for many years I was a performer in the nightclub circuit in New York City and I was pretty well known in those circuits. And I had a woman come up to me and say, you are so, so beautiful. I would have never had any idea that you uh, were a man. And she smiled. She was probably 35, 36 And she had glasses on and a little sundress with a belt around it. And she was getting her pictures taken with all the drag queens. And I kind of just grabbed my chest for a minute, surprised. And the person next to me jumped in front of me and said, excuse me, bitch. Excuse me. What did you just say to her? And I held up my hand and I just stopped her. I stopped, I stopped my friend from immediately leaping to my defense because I didn't feel like I needed defended. And I said to this woman, I appreciate what you're trying to say. And I'm really flattered that you think I'm pretty, but I'm a trans person. So I've never technically been a man. I've never possessed male characteristics. I've never been butch. I've never liked sports. I've never, you know, played ball. I've never had, you know, body hair and all these other things that are typically associated with males. I said, I've always been a trans woman and I will always be who I am. And she said, oh, Oh, I understand. I am so sorry. I I hope you weren't offended. I'm new to all of this and I'm just sort of picking up and learning and, you know, please don't be upset with me. Please don't be angry. And I said, don't worry. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. But now you know that trans people were never once men. They were always women. They were just once men lying about it. And I put it in a context in which she could understand. And I watched her face sort of contort as she absorbed this information and she took it on board and she gave me a hug. And she said, well, your mother is very lucky because if you've got her genes, you are one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And you did fantastic tonight. And that was the end of that. I didn't need to go to war. I didn't need to rally the troops. I didn't need to sit there and beat her over the head with how dare you kind of nonsense. I understood her intent was not to hurt me. Her intent was not to come into my space and eviscerate me. Her intent was not to glean satisfaction if she could get a rise out of me or make me cry or make me feel small or make me feel insignificant. Her intention was to compliment me. And even though she didn't use the right words, even though to some it may have sounded ignorant, it may have sounded uh, reductive, she learned and she listened And it didn't have to become all of that. She didn't have to go be put in a corner or kicked out of the club for offending a drag queen. The very reason that this is so important and these distinctions need to be made is because I think that we've forgotten largely that these distinctions exist. 
we're still in an era of teaching. We're still in an era of learning. Let us not forget that just 30 years ago, much of the language and much of what we know today had not been used or learned by anyone. And we live in a multi-generational society. And I'm grateful for the people who are picking up a book or reading a magazine and willing to learn and willing to adapt to changes as they happen. But as equally happy as I am about that, I'm concerned that being able to make the distinctions between somebody who intends to cause you pain versus somebody who makes an off-the-cuff, reckless remark in a rush-together five-minute dialogue where their goal is to actually be supportive, persecuting them, suspending them, publicly stoning them in the town square, as we have done to Whoopi Goldberg because of her misspeaking, in spite of her apologies, in spite of her efforts to coalesce with organizations that she admitted she could learn something from, and in spite of her saying quite clearly, I stand corrected, thank you for teaching me, she was reprimanded reprimanded for having made a faux pas. I would have understood this. I would have even supported this if this was a symptom of a belief that she had carried throughout her life and expressed in that moment to discredit the severity and the gravity of something as horrific as the Holocaust because there are still survivors around today. And I, I pray those survivors tell their stories because there's entirely a new generation who needs to hear them badly. Because time tends to numb us from the horrors of the past. And if we do not have those survivors around to speak from their mouths and share from their experiences, those stories will be lost on the tides of history forever. And that's unfortunately when you have nefarious actors come along and start making it up, reducing it. It wasn't as bad as they say. It wasn't as gruesome as they say. Or it was a conspiracy. We didn't really do that. It didn't happen. It was a political uh, agenda. And that terrifies me. That really scares me more than anything else when I look at the future of this country, that the darkest parts of it will be sanitized for future generations who will be absolutely rendered incapable of respecting the loss of life, of slavery, of the Native American genocide, of the AIDS, HIV crisis of the Holocaust. And you will never find a generation more quick to use careless or reckless language because understanding these things in a way that is intimate 
because they don't have a grandmother around who can tell them what happened. They don't have a grandfather that they were raised by that has a number on his arm. To them, it almost feels like science fiction, like it didn't really happen. People born after the Twin Towers went down can look at videos of of the horrors of that day but they have no real relationship with it because they never saw them building stood. So to them, that's just the way it always looked. Thus, to develop a relationship with history, they have to talk to the people who witnessed it. And if people stop talking, or time takes those teachers away from us, you're going to find future generations a lot more indifferent to the language that they use when they discuss those topics. And that is inexcusable. And that's something that leads me into another word we're going to discuss. And I know that it's one you have heard frequently. And I wonder if you have perhaps had the same visceral reaction to this word that I have every fucking time I hear it. Here is what it is. Woke. I have been called woke. Maybe you have been called woke. There are publications, movies, television shows, books that have been labeled woke. And I say that in the negative context, right? To me, I perceive woke as being aware, self-aware, aware of the world around me, aware of how other people develop differently than I do, aware that some people have come from different pathways than I have walked. I am aware of their value in this life. I am aware of the necessity of their visibility. I am awake to the fact that they exist and I see them and I acknowledge them and I respect them. And there is a place at the table for them. Now that doesn't sound too awful and scary and sinister to me as it has been called by many in the extreme right and on websites like The Federalist and many, many others who accuse woke culture of ruining everything because we are moving forward with eyes wide open. You know, I really don't mind being called woke, even though the intent with which it is delivered is to insult me, right? It's it's politically designed to reduce me to some weeping, whiny, liberal, tree-hugging, hypersensitive, sad, lonely, dejected individual who believes that everybody and everything should have respect and autonomy. And I'm actually not offended by it. In fact, I'm 
pretty privileged that through the course of my life, I have managed to maintain an awareness of the world around me, a respect for the world around me. I can see the world around me and acknowledge it as reality, not as a dystopian universe that I'm staring at through my world lens because people unlike myself exist out there. And that's scary and bad and evil. How dare anybody unlike me be heard, get on a soapbox and speak their truth, or be seen in a public uh, forum and listened to by an audience when they have something relevant to deliver or to teach us. You know, they often brand television shows woke for including non uh, non-binary characters or Latino characters or people of color. That's woke. Sure, that's woke. Because that's what the world looks like if you have your fucking eyes open. If you are an, a human being who operates with logic, if you are a human being who operates in rationality, and you've got both feet on the ground, where you look, what you see looking back at you is a diverse community of people of all shapes, shades, sizes, colors, genders, religions, everything. We don't live in a world that is like a 1930s black and white television show. That has never reflected reality. And it occurs to me that the people who accuse me, and maybe you, of being woke are absolutely bloody terrified that the world doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like what was presented or depicted as society when June Cleaver was baking uh, Walt some biscuits and Beaver was going out to play with his little white friend or uh, Lassie was taking Timmy to the well because, you know, the gardener had fallen down because the world didn't look like that. The world never looked like television. The world never looked like these people wanted it to or expected it should. It was, in fact, more profound, more diverse. And that diversity was an endless spectrum of everything you could possibly imagine. And these people, so intensely uncomfortable by that, when we acknowledge it, when Hollywood acknowledges it, when a writer acknowledges it by including that diversity in their book, when a football team or a basketball team includes a trans person in their sport, they're branded as woke, as if that is a negative, as if that's a bad thing thing, as if that is a affront to our better sensibilities. I'm quite proud to be woke because 
being woke allows me the privilege of navigating this world and everyone I see, I'm grateful for. I'm grateful to share this world with so many beautiful stories from so many different backgrounds and experiences. And I'm so delighted to include them in the world so that the gaze that we look through in media or in print reflects all of us, not just one perspective, as it was for far too long. And it would do the world a great deal of justice if everybody would wake up. If every single person out there experienced this wokeness that they like to bandy about on social media as this this abomination, this level of extremism pushed upon them for the sake of, for the sake of what? What are the consequences, you guys, of being woke? Aside from being accepting, aside from being tolerant, aside from being able to quite proudly acknowledge that you are not the only type of person that is right or correct or deserving or worthy to occupy a space in the society. Tell me where woke is bad. So I am completely unafraid when people accuse me of being woke in order to degrade me or to discredit my statements when I'm defending a minority class or the rights of women or a sitcom that is being remade with a community of color or a black little mermaid. Why does that fetch such an intense response from people if they are not already predisposed to bigotry. And that knee-jerk reaction to having to witness people unlike themselves functioning and flourishing in the world offends them. It gives them anxiety. They're afraid they're losing their seat in the throne of superiority that they had sat in for millennia because we are now more visible. And the woke see what is visible. And there is no shame in that as far as I'm concerned. None whatsoever. So when it comes to words that are used and leveraged in order to, you know, make you feel inferior or ignorant or lesser by comparison to the one attempting to hamstring you, knock your legs out from under you and put you down. There is nothing in any rule set ever written that said you had to follow those rules. Words don't hurt unless you let them. 
and not every word said in your direction or within your earshot is coming at you with the intent to hurt. There are sometimes battles we don't have to fight because the other side isn't showing up with an army, but it's a 48-year-old woman in a sundress and floppy hat who simply didn't use the correct language. And you could transition her from somebody who is looking to find out or wants to know more to an ally. Or we could meet her on the battlefield and pummel her with our righteousness and anger and lose an ally. We've really got to compartmentalize what words require our war crime. And it should not be based on the words that are said, but on the intention in which they were forged and delivered. Because that is where we will really win. When we manage to maintain control of ourselves and listen first, understand, take the temperature of the individual who with whom we are speaking and determine what part of that person is speaking to us. Is it a two-tooth Cletus from the backwoods of West Virginia looking to laugh at us behind our back and call us names and and hope that they can, you know, uh, get the better of us by jabbing us with insults? Or is it some innocent kid just sitting there um, in a space that they're trying to fit into and they just don't have the language yet in their own vernacular to communicate effectively or appropriately, but they want to. And when you see those situations, that rolls up into something else that we need to discuss before we close, and that is forgiveness. We are so much more eager these days to react than we are to forgive. We are so much more anxious to defend ourselves, and, and we, with good reason. In so many ways, the world has become such a chaotic, angry, and violent place that it is natural to presume sometimes that somebody wants to hurt us. It is natural to presume that we need to stay on the, the defensive to ensure our safety, to protect our space and our integrity and affirm that we have the right to be here. And that's okay. That's okay. That makes us gleeful soldiers ready to go to war if somebody decides that they're going to attack us like the last administration in America did, like the current administration in the UK is attempting to do. That requires us to meet people on the battlefield. That requires us to know completely and understand the beast that we are fighting of hate and misogyny and cruelty. But it isn't always that. Sometimes we can lay our swords down. Sometimes we can extol forgiveness to somebody 
who meant no harm, no foul, but is willing to listen and be educated. And if we're going to take enough time to fight the brutes who come at us with weaponized words in order to lay us flat and make us question our value, we certainly have to make the time to meet others with good intentions where they are because they might not have come from a place where that language was available to them, where it was easy to pick up the adapted language, the learned language, and share that in our company. And they might be equally embarrassed that they made an error. So hopefully, moving forward, we can start looking at these not as a monolith of people coming at us with sharp tongues and venomous words and outrage and manufactured anger at us explicitly designed to run through us like a wrecking ball because of who we are. Certainly there are those, but it's not everyone. We've got a great deal of work to do when it comes to outreach, education, Those are important things that have kind of fallen along the wayside because so many schools have an embargo on teaching children about trans people or about gay people or now teaching about the Holocaust. So we have a responsibility to educate them when they come into our fold, into our safe spaces, into our nightclubs, our bars. It is up to us to correct them when they make a mistake, but not tie them to a cross and crucify them because of their error. And that distinction is very important. Survivors, I've enjoyed every single moment with you today, as I always do. And it has been a joy and a privilege to spend this hour with you. And I hope you will join me next Saturday. Remember, every episode drops at 4 a.m. So you can pick me up, take me to work with you, run with me on your treadmill, listen to me in your car. You can listen to me on Spotify, maybe not on Spotify currently, if you uh, are one of those that has deleted it because of the recent Joe Rogan controversy. I'm also on Google Podcasts. In any case, I'd love to have you. And if you've got feedback, you can always reach out to me and let me know what you think. We'll talk to you soon, survivors. Have a great week. Good morning, survivors. It's time to wake up. Thank you.